All right, welcome back to another episode of Creedal Catholic. Today on the show, we're doing something a little bit different in light of Easter. There is no interview today, rather it is just me talking about the physical resurrection and why it is reasonable to believe in a physical resurrection. I've got some notes in front of me, so sometimes I'll be looking at the camera, sometimes I'll be looking at the notes just on the screen beyond the camera. Uh, but what I wanna do today is start with basically just a, a scene setter and why I'm thinking about this stuff recently. The first reason I'm thinking about it is because this is so foundational to our faith as Christians. Is the physical resurrection real? That is really what all of Christianity depends on, and you don't have to take my word for it, as I will illustrate very shortly. Uh, the second reason is I was talking with someone recently who asked me if I believed in aliens, and my response to him was, I am not totally opposed to the idea. I'm not convinced of their inexistence or non-existence, but nor am I convinced of their existence. There's just not enough data either way. So I said, and this person thought that was uh, something that reflected in a way religious faith, that if someone were to have a strong opinion on the existence of aliens, it would be akin to having a strong, strong belief in something like the resurrection or the virgin birth. That is, it would be a fantasy, potentially not warranted by the evidence. So that got me to think a little bit more about how many people maybe don't understand all of the facts, all of the evidence, the historical evidence that points to the reality of the resurrection. And I thought, what better topic to talk about around Easter than the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? Now, the second thing is, I actually did a podcast also on the physical resurrection two years ago. You may have heard that already. This will recap some of that information. Some of it will be new. Uh, but in that episode, I led with this. Uh, there was an article by Nick Kristoff three years ago, 2019, on the occasion of Easter, in which Nick Kristoff, the famous uh, New York Times columnist, interviewed Dr. Serene Jones, who is now and was at the time the president of Union Theological Seminary. And if you don't know, Union has a long and storied history, uh, has pride of place in sort of American, um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, not mainstream, but uh, the big denominational, the sort of mainline denominations, I guess mainline is what I'm looking for, uh, it has pride, pride of place among the mainline denominations in American Christianity. It's a large seminary. It's a famous seminary. It's a seminary that has had powerful people on the faculty. It's a seminary that has trained some of the most prominent mainline Christian leaders, but it's a very progressive seminary. And so it may come as no surprise to you that when uh, Nick asked this person, Serene Jones, uh, what would happen if there was no real physical resurrection, she basically brushed off the question. Let me explain. Let me read to you exactly what what uh, what was said. Kristoff said to her, "Isn't a Christianity without a physical resurrection less powerful and awesome? When the message is about love, that's less religion, more philosophy." Okay, very valid question in my view. Jones responds and says. For me, the message of Easter is that love is stronger than life or death. That's a much more awesome claim than that they put Jesus in the tomb and three days later he wasn't there. For Christians for whom the physical resurrection becomes a sort of obsession, that seems to me to be a pretty wobbly faith. What if tomorrow someone found the body of Jesus still in the tomb? Would that then mean that Christianity was a lie? No, faith is stronger than that. All right, that's the end of her quote. My question to her, is it though? Is his faith really stronger than that? Let me say to her 
that if someone were to find the body of Jesus tomorrow and there were some way to irrefutably demonstrate that that was indeed the body of Jesus of Nazareth, I can't imagine there being a method to do that. But if, just bear with me, if they could possibly do that, then yes, my faith would be in complete shambles. It would have been built on a completely artificial edifice. It would be built on nothing. It would be a house of cards, a house of straw, whatever the analogy is you want to make. It would be nothing. It would indeed make a shipwreck of my faith if the resurrection were a lie, okay? St. Paul tends to agree with me, which I will get to in just a moment, but let me back up. Dr. Jones says, that's a much more awesome claim that love is stronger than life or death. That's a much more awesome claim than they put Jesus in the tomb and three days later he wasn't there. But that's not the claim. The claim is not that there was an empty tomb. That would be a pretty weak claim indeed if our, if our entire faith was simply built on this message of an empty tomb. That'd be kind of dumb. There are many reasons why a tomb could be empty, uh, the foremost being grave robbers, perhaps also the swoon theory, which we'll talk about and which Jesus didn't actually die. There are reasons that there could be an empty tomb, but what we're talking about is not simply an empty tomb, but a physical resurrection that Jesus came back to life, right? Now, uh, when Dr. Jones then accuses Christians like me uh, to turning uh, of turning the physical resurrection into a sort of obsession, it just makes no sense to me because she says the message of Easter is that love is stronger than life or death. That's a great message. Love is indeed stronger than death. But how is that the message of Easter for her if there is actually no conquering of death by that love? So she's right that the message of Easter is, in part, that love conquers death, specifically, more specifically, most specifically, that Jesus Christ, who is God-made man, fully God and fully man, conquers death. That's a great Easter message. But it's not true if he didn't actually conquer death. So her comment here just came, seems to me completely incoherent. But I want to turn to St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, and what, what he writes about this. I'm going to start at the very beginning. I'll skip around a little bit, but I'm just going to start in the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, reading from the ESV translation, English Standard Version. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received— that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. I'm going to interject here. That was verse 8 where I finished. Uh, Paul is very carefully recounting not just the fact that he died, not just the fact that there was an empty tomb, but that he died, he was buried, and he was raised on the third day, and he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, then to more than 500 brothers, then again to James, then to the rest of the apostles, and then to St. Paul. Oh, and, and to more than 500. Did I say 500? Yeah. Uh, so he appeared to a ton of people, more than 500 people, plus all the apostles, plus St. Paul. Uh, and this was not a mere mere phantasm. This is a real resurrection. Okay, that's verse 8. Now let's go on, starting in verse, 19, uh, verse 13. I'm sorry, verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Right? Let's back up. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, verse 14, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Do you hear that, Dr. Jones? St. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So yes, 
If Jesus did not die and rise again, our faith would be in vain. Verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. I'm going to fast forward to verse 32 at the end of the chapter. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, then quote, says St. Paul, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Okay, so to wrap this up, if Christ did not actually have a physical bodily resurrection, then none of it matters. Let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die. And there will be no resurrection for us if there was not for the Son of God, who was God-made man. Okay, so Dr. Jones, Dr. Jones's argument has been sufficiently obliterated by the great apostle, uh, and we can move on. But the point here is that we, quote, obsess, in Dr. Jones's words, we obsess over the physical resurrection because it is the central aspect of our faith. It is the central truth around which everything else rises or falls. If it is true, then Christianity is true. If it is false, then Christianity is false. It's as simple as that. So let's move on to the question then. Is the physical resurrection true? Now, what do we mean by the resurrection? That's another important thing to dive into. I've already said it's physical and bodily, but I want to I want to reiterate some of this stuff. So it is not a ghost story, right? This is not simply a story of Jesus showing up uh, and doing things in a way that people sort of saw this phantasm, this phantom in their midst. Uh, you know, he goes through doors, but he doesn't do anything else that a body, he doesn't do things that a body would do. He goes through doors, he, you know, he doesn't eat or drink, right? He doesn't think, he, does, he doesn't have actually about actual bodily needs. He doesn't have hunger or thirst, for example, right? That would be a ghost story. That's not what this is. And in fact, if you look at Luke 24, uh, the disciples appeared to think that maybe this was a ghost in their midst. And then uh, Jesus asked for some fish to eat. And so they sat down and, and ate with him. Uh, and so, this is clearly not simply a ghost story. This is also not a mere resuscitation, right? This isn't simply uh, someone, uh, you, you know, uh, going, uh, whatever the term, you know, a, a medical code on the table in a surgery, the heart stops, and then you need to bring in the paddles and bring this, this person back to life, right? That's impressive. That's really great when it happens, but that's not what this is. We're not talking about Jesus um, quickly losing consciousness, his heart briefly stopping, his lungs uh, briefly uh, no longer breathing and then him sort of coughing up blood and coming back to life. That's not a resurrection either. We're actually talking about something more than that. We're, we're talking about a, a renewal of his body. We're talking about a resurrection of his body. Um, uh, very different from just a simple resuscitation. It's also not a reincarnation. So uh, we know from um, the, the accounts, for example, in which Jesus appears to the apostles and shows Thomas, St. Thomas, uh, the holes in his hands and in his side. We know that this is not a reincarnation. This is not Jesus's spirit somehow inhabiting a new body, but this is a resurrection of Jesus's physical earthly body uh, after he has already died. This is also not about a Gnostic separation of soul from body, which would be similar to the incarnation point that I just mentioned. This isn't enlightenment. This isn't um, Jesus's soul or um, uh, or brain being filled with some sort of new knowledge. This is also also not a translation. There is obviously an ascension, right? Jesus does ascend into heaven after walking on earth for forty days after his resurrection. But this is not uh, this is not what the resurrection is. The resurrection is not the ascension. The resurrection is not a translation into heaven or an assumption into heaven. The resurrection is something else entirely. 
and this is also not a vision that I think is uh, is pretty evident from the ghost discussion. This isn't this uh, a hallucination, if you will, uh, by the apostles, and it isn't a myth. Uh, the, all of these things have been, of course, proposed as explanations for uh, for the empty tomb uh, in some cases, or for the you know conviction of the apostles that they had seen the risen Christ. But that's not what the best evidence that we have uh, suggests to us. Now. If that is not what the resurrection is, and if it is reasonable to believe, uh, I think we need to examine this a little bit more. Based on the facts that we have, and I'll review just a few of the sort of stubborn facts, I think I think that's William Lane Craig's language. It could be uh, someone else's, but um, there are some stubborn facts around the resurrection. Uh, I will also add that the crucifixion is a, a virtually universally acknowledged fact among even secular historians of the time period. They recognize that there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth, and they recognize that he was uh, sentenced to death and killed by crucifixion sometime around 30 to 33 AD. So that is not a particularly controversial point. That is not one that you have to be a Christian to uh, to believe and to hold to. That is one that uh, the best um, non-biblical and biblical historical sources uh, obviously attest to. So um, that is that is one, that, and you, you can look me up on that, how, how well attested the crucifixion of Jesus is, but it's very well attested. So given that we can uh, presume, I believe, uh, reasonably, that he did in fact, uh, that Jesus was in fact crucified, that he was hung upon a cross somewhere in the, the uh, time period of 30 to 33 AD, given that, and given uh, what we might call the empty tomb, the fact that there is no body in the empty tomb, there is no uh, plausible historical claim that anyone has ever made to have found the, the body of Jesus, given that we have to posit, um, we, we, have to, we have to come up with some explanation for what happened. And there are basically three main hypotheses. Uh, one of those three has th three different sort of sub subplots or sub uh, subtypes, I guess we'd, we could say. The first of those hypotheses is that uh, Jesus never actually died. This is often referred to as the swoon theory. Oh, and by the way, I want to mention actually a lot of what I'm drawing on today to talk about these things are taken from uh, from two different books. One is William Lane Craig's The Sun Rises. Um, that's where the sort of four stubborn facts uh, come into play. Uh, William Lane Craig is a philosopher who has done uh, a lot of work on proofs for the existence of God in a philosophical sense, but he's also done a lot of Christological work talking about the historical Christ and the reasonableness for faith in the historical Christ. The second book that I'm that I'm drawing from is, uh, this is an older version, but it's Peter Crift and uh, Ronald Ticelli's Handbook of Christian Apologetics. And there's a very helpful chapter in here that I'm at times even quoting uh, verbatim from in my notes. Um, that goes into detail on the the historical resurrection. So I wanted to mention that before I go further. If you want to pick those books up, this one's the Handbook of Christian Apologetics, and the other one is William Lane Craig's The Sun Rises. Uh, sun as in S uh, S O N. The Sun Rises. It's a obviously a play on words. Okay, but the uh, the three explanations uh, are one. There's the swoon theory. The swoon theory holds that Jesus didn't actually die. Not that he never died, but that he didn't die from the crucifixion. The swoon theory goes something like this: Yes, Jesus was crucified. Yes, Jesus hung on the cross. Yes, Jesus was even taken down from the cross. But no, he wasn't dead. They thought he was dead. He was unconscious, perhaps. He was faking it, perhaps. But they thought he was dead. They put him in the tomb. He wasn't actually dead. So he gets up, staggers out of the tomb, and is basically. And basically disappears. So the people think that there was a resurrection. That would explain perhaps why he, you know, showed up to the apostles, why he made some appearances here and there after his death, and then he just disappears in relative obscurity after that. I don't actually know the plot of the Da Vinci Code, but I do know that there's this there's this uh, 
this plot line through it in which Jesus, it's a, it's a rather, it's a, it is a blasphemous plot line, but it's one in which Jesus marries Mary Magdalene, I think, and they have children. Uh, this is probably, it probably goes hand in hand with the swoon theory that he didn't actually die, that he had a life presumably after the crucifixion because he didn't actually die from the crucifixion. That's the swoon theory. We'll get to uh, all the reasons why that's problematic. The second, uh, the second theory is that Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, right? It's just that simple. He did die and he stayed dead. This theory has three different subtypes. Uh, we can call one the, the sort of hallucination subtype, one the conspiracy subtype, and the third the myth subtype. The hallucination subtype of this one says that the apostles were simply deceived, right? In Luke chapter 24, for example, when Jesus appears to them, they are all hallucinating. Uh, it's not a ghost. It's simply a you know neurological manifestation of the fact that they really want Jesus to still be alive, so they hallucinate him. They're not bad guys. They're not trying to trick us when they write the Bible. Uh, they were just hallucinating when they thought they saw Jesus and they never actually did, okay? That's th that's sub-theory number one. Sub-theory number two, we can call the conspiracy theory. This is where the apostles are actually bad guys. And they get together and they say, hey, let's trick the whole world into thinking that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Great plan. We'll go, we'll go do that. So in the conspiracy theory, the apostles actually conspire. You know, when they're, when, in, when they're in the upper end, Pentecost, for example, nothing actually would have happened. They would have just said, let's pretend that, you know, we're being filled with the Holy Spirit and we'll go out and speak a bunch of gibberish. Uh, and then we'll go out to all the world and we'll tell them about this Jesus guy who we all know didn't actually die, but it's a better story if we tell them that he did rise. Or sorry, not we, we all know he didn't actually rise. They do know he died. They know he didn't actually rise, but they think it's a better story if they say that. So they decide they're going to go out to all the world and lie to them, okay? And then, of course, if that's the case, then we have been the inheritors of a giant lie for 2,000 years. It's kind of, kind of a depressing thought, if that were true. There are a lot of reasons why we can be confident that is not true, and I'll get to those, some of those. Uh, the third subtype would be called the myth subtype. And this is also uh, relatively similar to the first and that there's no ill intention necessary here. It's not that the apostles were bad guys and trying to uh, to create a conspiracy, but myths are things that take place over time. I mean, think about, for example, uh, Chuck Norris jokes, right? Chuck Norris is um, so strong that when he does push-ups, the earth moves away from him, but he stays in the same spot. I mean, these are completely ridiculous mythological claims about a character. Uh, the same thing plausibly could have happened in the case of Jesus. You had this wonderful healer, this wonderful rabbi, this wonderful um, figure uh, who is crucified, and then you know, there's an empty tomb perhaps because maybe grave robbers come and take him away. And over time, that turns into a myth about Jesus actually rising from the dead and Jesus commissioning his disciples to go into the world to preach the gospel, etc. Right? So uh, that is the myth sub-theory sub of the theory that there actually was no resurrection, that Jesus did die. Right? So option one, Jesus didn't die. Option two, Jesus did die, but he stayed dead. Option three is that Jesus did die and he rose again. That is obviously the faith we hold. Now, let's break these down a little bit in turn. But I wanna break them down in light of these four stubborn facts that William Lane Craig talks about in his The Sun Rises. Now, I'm just gonna do a very, very cursory overview of these. Uh, and he goes into them, obviously, in much greater depth than I would encourage you to pick up that book and look at it. Uh, I would show you the book, but I actually don't have a hard copy. Um, I've read portions of it, though, uh, and I've read the portions in, in particular that talk about these sort of stubborn facts. So the first one, I already mentioned we, we can sort of acknowledge the crucifixion. Jesus was crucified. That is attested to by virtually every historian uh, who is who, ex who has examined the era. That's not an issue that he was crucified. Um, so these are the stubborn facts, okay? 
first of all, Jesus was buried, right? Um, the burial of Jesus is attested to by multiple independent sources, um, including, by the way, all the Gospels. And this is a, a very brief methodical note, but even as a secular historian, we have to acknowledge the historicity of the Gospels. The Gospels stand... Uh, stand for themselves as historical documents and chronologies and records, just as any other historian of the era of Josephus, for example, uh, his histories would stand uh, independently. Um, you know, we have to do that because we have to apply, in in the interest of fairness, we have to apply the same historical critical sort of methods of rigorous examination to any work of history, including books of the Bible, that we would apply to other things. So we can't simply dismiss a historical record simply because it's in the Bible. Uh, yes, we can certainly look at corroborating accounts of that, and there are those in the case of the burial, but we can't dismiss uh, dismiss a historical claim uh, or chronology out of hand simply because it is in the Bible and we we don't reject and we reject the divine authority of the Bible. The books of the Bible, as it happens, even if you don't believe in God, the books of the Bible can be and in fact are, look at the any of the Old Testament historical books, they are accurate recordings of what has happened previously. So we have to take them on their own terms, even if we don't acknowledge the divine authority. I obviously do, you don't have to, and that's okay, but what you do, what you should do is, is accept them on their own terms as historical books, just like you would do for any other book. So with that in mind, the burial of Jesus is attested to by multiple independent sources. Uh, there's no other burial story. There's no other account uh, of where Jesus was buried after his crucifixion. And the the tomb that we read about in the Gospels is consistent with the types of tombs used in the era. So this means that Jesus was, in fact, to the best of our knowledge, based on the best available evidence we have, Jesus was, in fact, buried. Now, that would be a rather useless fact, except for the fact that it is accompanied by another stubborn fact, and that stubborn fact is the existence of an empty tomb. This also is attested to by multiple independent sources. Um, and we also have to acknowledge uh, the gospel accounts. I think it's, uh, actually, let me look at this up real quick. I want to say that it is in uh, the Gospel of Mark. But in one of the gospels, the empty tomb is discovered by women. Let us see. I'm looking at uh, a blog post from biola.edu and I am incorrect. Each of the, I'm reading this verbatim now, each of the gospels records that women were the first to receive the amazing news that Jesus was alive, but they recounted in slightly different ways. Matthew gives us the names of Mary of Magdalene and the other Mary in Matthew 28. Mark records Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome in Mark 16.1. Luke includes Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James in Luke 24, and John mentions only Mary Magdalene in John chapter 20. Mark says that there were many other women who had come up with him in Jerusalem, and Luke agrees that there were other women. So the point here is that in each of the four Gospels, the first witnesses to the resurrection are, in fact, women. That's an unlikely invention. We'll get to that uh, later, but that is attested to now by four sources, four historical sources, that women discovered an empty tomb on the morning of the resurrection. The earliest Jewish propaganda, this is actually actually a very interesting point as well. Uh, William Lane Craig points out that the earliest Jewish propaganda that was set to, that was trying to discredit the Christian claims of the resurrection actually presumed an empty tomb. Isn't that interesting? So what that means is it was not contested then that there was in fact an empty tomb. What was contested, of course, was whether or not Jesus was God. What was contested was whether or not there was actually a bodily resurrection. But the, the fact of the empty tomb was not, uh, was not an issue. In other words, the other side conceded 
uh, at least implicitly, that the tomb, in fact, was empty on Easter morning. Moreover, the tomb was never venerated as a shrine uh, in the Christian faith, uh, going back to the earliest days of the Christian faith, and even prior to that, the Jewish faith, uh, tombs were often venerated as shrines. Think of um, uh, think of the bones of uh, Jacob, um, the, the, yeah, the bones of Jacob. So the tombs would be uh, venerated as shrines in the Old Testament, in, Jew- in the Jewish faith, and in the early Christian faith, uh, and obviously they still are uh, in the Christian church. Um but the tomb was never venerated, meaning that it was never believed by anyone uh, of that time that Jesus actually died there. Um, another point to to, uh, to mention is that the uh, the motive for stealing the body uh, is very unclear, um, which adds to the mystery of the empty tomb. All right, so we have the we have Jesus' burial and we have the empty tomb. We also have the postmortem appearances. I just read Paul in 1 Corinthians, right? Jesus appeared to over 500 people, including all the apostles. Uh, we have women as the first witnesses, like I also just mentioned. Every resurrection account in the Gospels underscores the bodily resurrection um, and makes 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 very clear that that is what is happening, that this is not simply a ghost or hallucination. Um, and Paul, in that, in that uh, work in 1 Corinthians, he appeals to the 500, saying some of these people are still alive and can back me up that they, in fact, saw the resurrected Christ. So that's the third stubborn fact, that the, there were postmortem appearances. So we have the burial, we have the empty tomb, we have the postmortem appearances that we have, to, uh, we have to deal with in any account of what happened here. And finally, perhaps most convincingly to me, the disciples believed. Okay, the disciples believed. And we'll talk about this a little bit more, especially in the conspiracy uh, theory here. But it's very clear that the disciples believed that what happened was actually a bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead to life again. They believed that because they were there. They were witnesses to it, as we see in the Gospels. But we mostly know that they believed it because it changed everything about about the way they lived their lives. I mean, think about this. We have, just take for an example, Peter. But the same could be said of almost all of them who fled at the first sign of the betrayal in the garden and just ran away and, and left Jesus for fear of themselves. We have Peter, who the night that Jesus is arrested, just hours before, had told Jesus, I'm never going to abandon you, though I will even have to suffer and die with you. I will never desert you. As soon as Jesus is arrested and as soon as people are telling Peter, you were with him, you were one of the you're one of the teacher's followers. He says, you know, I don't know the man. I don't know the man. Denies Jesus three times because he's too afraid to do anything. He's too afraid to stand up for Jesus. He's too afraid to die with Jesus or even to suffer a little bit for Jesus. I heard a commentary recently that was pointing out that Peter was only at the fire, the the fire uh, outside the temple to warm himself uh, because people there were he was only there because he was cold, right? He was uncomfortable even with being cold. So he went to the fire to warm himself, and it was there that people said, "I know you. You're one of you're you're with him. You're you were one of them." So he was not only willing to he was not even he was not definitely not willing to die for Jesus, and he was not even willing to be cold for Jesus. Uh, and he ended up denying Jesus three times on the night of Jesus's arrest. But then, fast forward a few weeks later, and we have Peter filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost with the other disciples. And then we have Peter traveling the world on missionary journeys, eventually going to Rome, eventually being crucified upside down for the cause of his master, Jesus Christ. That is not the work of someone who does not believe what they're preaching. That is the work of someone who believes what they're preaching. The same can be said of every single apostle, disciple slash apostle, uh, including St. Paul, 
that they believe so much in their faith that they died for it, except for St. John, who had to sort of, you know, martyrdom by, uh, martyrdom by exile. Um, but they all clearly believed strongly in what they, what they saw. So that's the fourth stubborn fact that I think is perhaps the most compelling of all. Now let's dive into a few of these in slightly more detail um, real quick because we're, we're getting a little bit long on time. So the first, the swoon theory, right? Again, reminder, the swoon theory holds that Jesus didn't actually die. Maybe, they, maybe people thought he did, but he didn't, right? So, so when the stone was rolled back from the tomb, when he rolled it back, rolled back the stone from the tomb, which is a problem with this theory, uh, he waltzed right on out of there, right? And people thought he was resurrected. So yes, there's an empty tomb, explains the empty tomb, uh, explains even perhaps the post-resurrection appearances, right? But what it doesn't explain is, is uh, the disciples' firm conviction. Here are some other problems with the, with the swoon theory. Crucifixion, crucifixion uh, is one of the most grueling things that a human being can possibly go through. Uh, it's not the kind of thing that you walk away from alive. Multiple people saw him there, as we know from the historical accounts recorded in the Gospels. Multiple, multiple people saw him there uh, and saw him die. We had eyewitnesses confirm his death, including John, who obviously wrote the Gospel of John. Uh, we had the soldier in John 19 who didn't break Jesus' legs precisely because Jesus was already dead. We had blood and water coming from Jesus' side, which, yes, of course, um, has a beautiful a spiritual meaning to it, uh, but also would indicate, physiologically speaking, that Jesus' lungs had collapsed. Uh, and so we have all these signs, these very clear signs that Jesus was actually dead. Uh, another problem with this one theory, even if that was not the case, even if Jesus was not dead, he would not be in any shape to walk out of the tomb himself. He would not be uh, in any kind of shape to roll the stone back by himself. Um, it would be the case that he would be, well, first of all, certainly very dead. But even if he were barely alive, how could he, how could he waltz out of the tomb like that? He would need uh, an awful lot of help to do that. It would be very hard to deceive anybody. So if we're deceiving people, if the if the apostles, for example, are in on it and they're rolling the stone away for him, then we're just in the territory of the conspiracy theory, which we'll get to. Um, fourth, the fourth problem with this is that there's just no record of Jesus um, after the ascension, right? So he, if he awoke from a swoon and had this sort of secret life, you know, uh, you know, for the sake of the argument, married Mary Magdalene, had kids, whatever. If he had a secret life, uh, why why do we not know of that? Why are there no rumors of that whatsoever? And the Da Vinci Code is not kind of a rumor. That's a complete fiction that Dan Brown made up. There's, there's no, there's no data, not even apocryphal sources that talk about uh, in any length of a post post resurrection or post ascension life of Jesus. So where did that go? It didn't go anywhere. Um, so I think the swoon theory problems show that the disciples, at the very least, had to be in on it. And so now we're just in the in the territory of the conspiracy theory, right? Again, if Jesus was not able to, if Jesus was, if Jesus left the grave, left the tomb after crucifixion, it was only with the help of the, the disciples. So now we're in the territory of the conspiracy theory. And we have to talk about, it's take seriously this idea that the disciples could be in on it. Okay. Now the conspiracy theory, what are the problems here? The problems with the conspiracy theory are they require us to believe that the apostles, as we just talked about, knowing the truth of Jesus's non-resurrection, then immediately decided to sign up and preach the resurrection without any inducements, without any motives, uh, and not just preaching. It's not just traveling the world and getting all the, you know, the private jets and all that and getting all the perks of itinerant preaching. There are not many perks of itinerant preaching, by the way. It's not just that. It's also obviously signing up to die and be martyred for the faith. So we had uh, people over for dinner tonight. We were talking about some of the things that the apostles endured and how remarkable it is, right? They're they're flayed alive. I think Bartholomew was flayed alive. They're they're sawn in two. Their heads are cut off. Uh, they're they're boiled. 
alive. I mean, terrible, terrible things that the apostles went through, all for the sake of the gospel, all for the sake of proclaiming the resurrection. And the biggest problem with the conspiracy theory is this is not the mark of uh, this is not the mark of someone who would die for it. Um, if it's not true, why did they go to great lengths to do it? Second problem, similar but different. These guys also didn't have the background to do it. If if Jesus wanted to pull off the greatest conspiracy, um, greatest con in history, why would he surround himself with a bunch of you know blue collar fishermen who were uneducated? Wouldn't he want to surround himself with the the Pharisee types, the ones who would be potentially savvy enough to coordinate and pull it all off? But no, that's not what he did. He was surrounded by eleven disciples. Uh, later, uh, Matthias and Paul would be added to the mix as the twelfth uh, and thirteenth apostles. And these, again, a bunch of fishermen and blue-collar workers. And somehow, we're to expect that they crafted together the most enduring literary fantasy in all of human history. I mean, isn't that remarkable? And finally, that they did it for no reason at all, right? So there's no actual motive in the, in the conspiracy theory. Most, you know, most things today, when, when there's a, a, a spiritual healer who's accused of a con or, uh, I don't know, any sort of like traveling you know, salesman or a, uh, a preacher of the next sort of uh, elixir of life, um, anytime they're accused of being con, the motive is clear. They're, they're selling something. There's something to be gained from it. There's absolutely nothing to be gained from the disciples traveling the world and dying for this message at all. There's, there's nothing whatsoever. So there's no motive. Uh, there's no motive in the conspiracy theory, which um, is a huge problem for it, I think. Um, there's also the fact that uh, the conspiracy theory would have fallen apart immediately Um well, would have been highly likely to fall, fall apart immediately, especially if there was a body in the tomb, right? So if it was all fake, it would fall apart immediately. Uh, it would require a ton of savvy to pull it off. And um, uh, and I think that at the very least, if there was a conspiracy, there'd be early evidence of a conspiracy. And we would see that reflected in some of the records of Jewish propaganda that we do have, but we don't. We don't see anything about this being a conspiracy. We see uh, we see efforts to suggest that there that there was a conspiracy, was a conspiracy, but nothing nothing um, nothing that is based on anything uh, historical uh, that we can verify happened. Um, and then finally, going back to the point about women in the gospel, I said that we would come back to that. The lie is terribly executed. <laughs> so when uh, when all four gospel writers mention the fact of the resurrection, and all four gospel writers point to women as the first witnesses, that's a huge problem. Because in that time, a woman's testimony in court counted only as half of a man's. So the most reliable witnesses to any any event that happened in history and in, in, uh, that would be later testified to in a court of law, any event was best validated or verified by a man. So if you are crafting this elaborate story in a way that is not truthful to get people to believe something that is not true, you would never choose the least reliable narrators in the world. Now, obviously, I'm not saying women are not reliable narrators. I'm saying that at the time, an, a, a, a contemporary at the time audience would have recognized or would have seen women as less than less than less reliable than men. And so choosing women to be the primary narrators of the crucifixion uh, is a hugely risky play for someone who's really all in on a con just trying to get people to believe it. That's not what you would do if your whole motive is to get people to believe. That's what you would do if perhaps that's what actually happened and you were being truthful. Okay, so lots of problems with the conspiracy theory. And by the way, I'm not listing all the problems with each of these theories. I'm listing some of the highlights. Um, there are more. If you go to that book by uh, Peter Kreft and Ronald Ticelli, you'll find a lot more problems with each of these theories. Let's go on to uh, the second sub-theory, 
of the yes, he died, but no, he didn't rise uh, explanation. This second sub-theory is the hallucination. Briefly here, what are the problems? Uh, the biggest one is there are far too many witnesses. When someone hallucinates, it's generally an isolated instance. It's generally one person, not a group hallucination, unless they all are doing some sort of, you know, they're all, all on an LSD trip together. Uh, so there's one person, uh, one at a time, and uh, these hallucinations tend to be very brief, right? So they're private affairs. Uh, they're also brief affairs. Um, this was neither. We have more than 500 people uh, testifying to seeing the risen Christ. We have the disciples in the room who are touching him, who are shaking his hands, who are watching him eat. That is not what happens with the hallucination. Um, and then, the, I mean, maybe the biggest thing, mass hallucinations would be, would be very strange. One of the only times in history that's ever happened, the only one that I know of, but maybe there's a few other documented periods of that. But the mass hallucinations would be very strange. Uh, but even if they were true, they really wouldn't explain some of the other things we talked about, like uh, the empty tomb, the rolled away stone, the inability of Jewish leaders to produce a corpse, the the uh, presumption by Jewish propaganda of the time that, in fact, there was an empty tomb. So the hallucination theory really does not hold up. Uh, I think it's the weakest. You know, if, if you're going to, to take a stand against the physical resurrection, I think the hallucination theory is really the weakest thing. Uh, that's not much to hang your hat on. So there's a ton of problems there. I don't think we need to dwell too long. The myth theory. The myth theory is the final, uh, the final counter theory that we'll talk about tonight, and I think that is the most pernicious, because the myth, the myth theory is essentially what Dr. Serene Jones, and by the way, much of progressive Christianity holds, that the real story of Easter is this loving guy named Jesus, loved everyone so much that he laid down his life for them. What, how exactly that works, we don't really know, but he was just a really loving guy, and the Romans crushed him. And he died. And he went into the tomb. And he never rose again, but the important thing is we want to believe he did. And that's the Easter miracle. <laughs> I'm only slightly exaggerating, but that's basically progressive Christianity in a nutshell. There's nothing actually meaty to it. Uh, there's nothing supernatural to it. It's all just a bunch of uh, it's all just a bunch of, you know, naturalist empiricist. Uh, mishmash that is completely incoherent and really has no bearing on our faith life. But the myth theory is essentially that. The myth theory holds that over time, the myth of the resurrection became even more powerful than the fact. Uh, and so, you know, while the resurrection is not historically true, it's at least spiritually true or symbolically true. Um, but this, this has uh, really obvious problems as well. Now, uh, one of them is that the scriptural account is clearly not mythological. If you want to read a myth in the Bible, go to the first few chapters of Genesis. And by that, I don't mean that those are not true. I mean that they're clearly, very clearly using mythical language or figurative language to describe a primeval event. Backing up, what is a myth? A myth is not something that is that is untrue. A myth is something that holds you know, symbolic or spiritual truth, but is not, strictly speaking, literally or liter literalistically true. The account of creation, for example, in Genesis chapter 1, uses figurative language. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was out form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And on the first day, and on the second day, and on the third day. Now those days, for example, that's figurative language denoting periods of creation. But a day, it wouldn't make sense for anything like a day to exist before, for example, the sun exists, right? So the sun is created on day three, I think. Um, 
you know, so how does a day exist before the sun does? Clearly, we're, we're dealing with figurative language. That's not to say God doesn't create the earth. Of course he does. But it's saying that it's, it's saying that this specific part of Genesis is using figurative language to explain to us how exactly um, something happened. The Gospels are not like that. In fact, no part of the New Testament, with the exception of Revelation, employs um, mythical language. All of these are very historical. And you can tell this when you read them. When you read the gospel accounts, especially of the resurrection, you read about real people doing real things, encountering a real Jesus. You don't read that, you know, Jesus rose and, and appeared to a lot of people, and then he floated away in the clouds after he waved to the disciples. No, you read like Thomas was doubting that Jesus was real and said, unless I put my hand in his side and into the holes of his hands, I will not believe. And then Jesus shows up, and guess what? Thomas gets to do exactly that. Uh, and that's not a myth, right? That is not a myth. You also read about Joseph of Arimathea, who, who with Mary takes the body down. You read about Mary of Magdala. Who's that? It's a historical person. It's someone who is identified in a time and identified to a place, Magdala, right? So this is not mythical language at all. Um, these people don't have archetypal names. These people have, have real names. They have historically verifiable names. So that is not, uh, that is not consistent with the myth account. Second, more importantly, perhaps, um, the Gospels are actually written very close to the actual events in time. For a myth to develop, we need a lot of time. If the myth theory were true, what we would expect is that we'd have some record of Jesus dying, and then the first sort of reports, this, the first rumors, this first conversations of him resurrecting would be more than 100, probably more like you know, 200, 300 years after the fact, give, giving time for these myths to sort of take form um, and be propagated. That's not what we find. The Gospels are written very close to the actual event, you know, within uh, a decade or a few decades at most. Um, and so there's just not enough time for these uh, for these uh, things to take take the form of a myth. Julie Mueller, quoted in that uh, the Crefton Ticelli book, says, for example, that one cannot imagine how such a series of legends could arise in a historical age, obtain universal respect, and supplant or replace the historical recollection of the true character Jesus. If, I, if eyewitnesses were still at hand, who could be questioned respecting the truth of the recorded marvels? Her point here is the earliest gospels that we have are clearly written at a time very soon after the, re the, the resurrection, when there would be people alive who would say this is true or this is not true. So one, it doesn't have the time necessary for a myth to sort of take place and replace the true event. But two, it also would be written at a time when there'd be people who would be able to, to, to just clearly say and disprove and say I was a witness and that's not how it happened. But that's not what we find in the, uh, in the myth. Third, again, relevant here, the first witnesses to the resurrection are all women. Um, that's an inconvenient fact for the gospel writers, but it does not help the, the myth case. Again, if you're making a if you're making a myth, why would you make it in the way that is the least compelling? Um, and then finally, uh, even on its own terms, the New Testament itself clearly rejects the mythological reading. We already talked about 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, the New Testament is rife throughout the writings of the apostles. The New Testament is rife with uh, appeals to the resurrection of Christ, and it is indeed a bodily resurrection, not a mythological one. Um, and Second Peter one sixteen clearly seems to reject the uh, the myth approach to Christianity. When Peter himself, who obviously saw the risen Christ, says, "For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we are we were eyewitnesses of His Majesty." Right? We did not follow myths; we were there, and we saw it. Now, logically speaking, 
If we eliminate all other possibilities, we have to go with the one that remains, however implausible it must be true. So the only remaining explanation here, we talked about the swoon theory and why that doesn't make sense. We talked about the hallucination theory and why that does not fit with the evidence. We talked about the conspiracy theory and all the vast problems with that, especially surrounding the, the motives and intentions and actions of the disciples. And we talked about the myth theory. None of those actually fit well with the evidence. The last one is, of course, that Jesus died, he was buried, and on the third day, he rose again. That is the answer that fits best with the available evidence that we have. That is the one that is true. So I won't recap all of that, but I will say, once again, going back to the actions of the disciples, if these guys didn't believe that Jesus was actually risen from the dead, if they believed it was just a myth that they were pursuing, there's no way they would sacrifice their lives for him in the face of hunger, and nakedness, and sword, all kinds of suffering. These guys all went to their deaths, with the exception of John, all went to their deaths, proclaiming to their dying breath, the resurrected Christ. That's not something you do if it's all just a conspiracy, if it's all a hallucination, if it's all a myth, or if Jesus never actually died. That's something you do if it's true. Again, I recommend a few resources for you. The Sun Rises by William Lane Craig. Uh, Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ. I read it years ago, but I, I think it's good. Um, and Peter Kreft and Ronald Ticelli, their Handbook of Christian Apologetics. Lots of good stuff. Also, Brant Petre's The Case for Jesus, I believe it's called. Read that a few years ago. Very good. Um, you know, I think actually uh, I should give Petre some credit. I think he might also sort of have this sort of stubborn facts uh, methodology as well that he talks about that I, I borrowed from. Um, but all of those are great resources for you. Um Happy Easter. Uh, just rejoice, rejoice in this day, in this season, in the church, when we proclaim the truth that is so central to our faith of Jesus's bodily resurrection. Um, you know, I'll also add to you that uh, my wife and I recently had an interaction with a couple of um, uh, LDS, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints uh, missionaries. And um, what impressed me about these, uh, you know, we, we were telling them all about the Catholic faith and just trying to share with them, and they were obviously sharing with us. And what impressed me about them was their um, their lack of hesitation in just sharing their faith. And I think so many of us Catholics can take a cue from them as well. Um, what they're sharing is not true, and we had a, a good, lively discussion about that. Um, but what we're sharing is true, and we can be absolutely convinced of the truth of that, and I am absolutely convinced of the truth of that. So uh, let's be bold in sharing this. Let's be, let's be bold in proclaiming the real, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead, because that is, in fact, the answer that comports best with the available evidence that we have, and it is a truth that is revealed to us through sacred scripture and through the teaching of the church. So let's cling to that with everything we have, because that is indeed what our faith sits upon. If you have any questions for me, I'd be happy to answer them. Send me a note, Zach at creedalpodcast.com. Until next time, happy Easter, and may God bless you.